Welcome to Brainwaves, a podcast about big ideas produced at the University of Colorado Boulder. I'm Paul Bake. This week, one of the fastest growing industries in the world is all in cyberspace. More than a quarter of the world's population plays video games, according to Microsoft. That's two billion people forking over billions of dollars. Why so popular? And where can video games go from here? We'll talk to a professional shoutcaster, we'll explain that in a minute, a video game archaeologist, and a video game designer who draws inspiration from unlikely places. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to Brainways wherever you get your podcast. If you have a question about a show or you have a big idea you want us to explore, you can email us at brainwaves at colorado.edu. We'll start this week with eSports, where the best video game players compete in front of thousands of fans and a huge online community. Our first guest, Devin Young, isn't a player. He's a color commentator, just like the ones that call games in live sports. Here he is calling a game of League of Goes Legends. for him first, but who he answers right back with the Sand Soldiers. Meanwhile, up in the top side, Exhaust onto Achu, trying to finish, piercing light, double tap. Oh, the red stacks already! Sticks, they take and Achu down! Devin Young, welcome to Brainwaves. You're a freelance commentator or shoutcaster who goes by the name Pyrotechnics in your work. I'm guessing shoutcaster wasn't on the list of internships when you were a student at CU Boulder. How did you get into this line of work? Uh, well, you're right about that. It definitely didn't uh, show up on, on the list of uh, internships I could check out. It's kind of a funny story. Um, even back in the days of CU, I used to watch uh, esports tournaments when they were sort of nascent, sort of newer. Um, around 2010, a game called StarCraft II. Uh, was released that really started to put this into the mainstream. So I started watching it a lot, um, and I found that I was spending a lot more time watching it, uh, even when I went into the real world, as it were, uh, just you know, popping up an iPad and, and watching the games while I was at work. And one day, two and two kind of got put together in my head, and I thought, you know, I I spend so much time doing this, I should really look into seeing if there's any work in this industry. And it turns out a lot of it is self-taught. So I took the time, nights and weekends, and eventually kind of pulled together a harebrained scheme to uh, really teach myself how to do this full time and just went from there. What would you say is your job description? It's really kind of a combination of like almost being like a hype man promoter and a, uh, a live commentator. When I get hired to do a job, typically it's uh, I'm bringing in an, uh, the audience that already knows who I am, but I'm also giving a voice to the action on screen. It's really no different than uh, a sports commentator's play-by-play. It's just the content that's on the screen is very different from what you would think of as a traditional sport. Um, but we also have to, again, act as, as kind of promoters through various venues, things like social media, Twitter, Instagram, all of that, um, to sort of generate buzz ahead of the event as well. The, the pace seems similar to hockey, but only faster. How, how do you keep track of everything that's going on on the screen? Well, it, it helps if you play a lot of video games and you're aware of you know what, what sort of visuals that you're looking for. Uh, you don't necessarily need to be a professional level player of the games you commentate, but you have to have at least a passing understanding of how things operate within the game. So just like any you know a hockey commentator, a football commentator, a baseball commentator, you need to know the rules. You need to know what you're looking for, and you just have to be very quick at translating what you see into something that sounds exciting and uh, narrative for the game. So it's a lot of it is reacting in the moment. You've been all over the world doing this from China to Australia to Europe. 
Describe what you see when you're calling a game. What's the room like? Well, it kind of varies. Sometimes you are in a small studio with a handful of colleagues and cameramen, uh, and it's very sterile in that sense because it's a, an online-only event. But sometimes it's a large stadium that's filled with shouting fans, and you're trying to block out that mental, oh, my God, there's a, a million people in front of me, and if I mess up, everyone will hear it forever. It's easier to tune that out when they're online because you don't see them. So it really does kind of vary. I, I've done events that were in somebody's basement, and I've done events that were in a gigantic sports stadium. And uh, it, it's incredible how, how much variety you actually get in, in the list line of work. For people like me who didn't really know how big this was, how big is this and where is it going? Well, uh, it's certainly been on the rise. The, the last decade uh, really saw this increase in, in fandom and interest uh, in terms of like exactly how big it is numbers-wise. I, I don't know exactly how many eyeballs watch it, but if you look at some of the major platforms that are broadcasting it, uh, Twitch.tv, uh, YouTube has a, a whole section now that's pretty much just dedicated for esports. Um, you know, you get well in the millions for the largest uh, broadcast. I think we... Uh, some of our biggest events of the year, like the League of Legends World Championship, routinely passes events like the Stanley Cup at this point. Um, maybe not quite as big as like the largest American sports, uh, you know, the, the Super Bowl or, or a NASCAR event. We're not going to quite get those eyeballs, but we're definitely working our way into the mainstream. And in terms of where it's going, uh, apart from just being more generally accepted, it's becoming part of regular culture. I've started to see on, on television channels it just popping up hey, there's the C-Sports News Network that's covering all of this. Uh, or over here, here's a, a live rebroadcast of the event that happened yesterday online um, on, on national television. So that's really cool. Uh, and it's, it's a good sign of things to come. I think the biggest challenge in esports at the moment is trying to figure out how to properly monetize a lot of those eyeballs because it's, it's mostly online and people use ad blocks. So... There's definitely a challenge there in actually generating revenue from advertising and things like this. But in terms of popularity, in terms of fandom and passion, it's absolutely there. With this growth, there is a fair amount of money. Can you tell us what kind of money might be involved in a major tournament? Yeah, um, it, it really just depends on what the, the game is, because esports is kind of an umbrella term, right? There's lots of different titles. I mentioned League of Legends because that's where I came from. Uh, the game StarCraft II, obviously, was sort of a, a, an early one. Um, there's all sorts of games in different genres, and depending on the backing of the publisher, the popularity, uh, what the organizers can raise in terms of money, it can vary. You can have tournaments that are small, that are you know in the tens of thousands of dollars for prize pools, uh, but you can also have well into the millions. I think the most recent um, tournament that I can think of in terms of large prize pools uh, was... a uh, the, the International, which is a Dota 2 tournament. And that had a prize pool of about 2.2 million, um, one and a half of which was put up by the tournament organizer, and the remainder was uh, crowdfunded, which is one of the ways in which a lot of publishers and organizers actually uh, raise money for events like this. They just do crowdfunding. It's, you know, everyone chip in a little bit here and there. Sometimes they'll offer an incentive, an in-game item, if you chip into it. Um, so it, it can certainly get very uh very very high price pools very fast if there's a lot of people that want to watch these things and how well integrated the promotion marketing efforts are so uh what's next for you where where are you headed 
Uh, well, uh, Los Angeles currently. I, I spent about five years in Europe uh, working on uh, a large league there. And uh, I decided to go freelance after a little while, which is something that happens uh, pretty consistently for people who are in my line of work. It's not the most stable. And uh, I've decided that I wanted to go back stateside after being abroad so long, spend uh, some time kind of relearning how the industry works on this particular coast uh, and just sort of rekindling a lot of connections that I'd made over the years that it's hard to keep up with when you work in different time zones. So I'm looking to see what's out here in Los Angeles. I'm kind of adding some extra skills to my portfolio, uh, working towards kickstarting some uh, voiceover work as well. So it's kind of multi-level, kind of varied at this point. Well, it sounds like you're very busy. Yeah, that's for sure. Devin Young, good luck in your career, and thanks a lot for joining us today on Brainwaves. Thank you. You can read more about Devin Young in the podcast description. That's the world of gaming today. But do you remember where it all started? I paid a visit to the Media Archaeology Lab on the campus of CU Boulder to find out. When you walk into the Media Archaeology Lab, you're transported back four or five decades. Desks and shelves are lined with what was once cutting-edge technology, but which now are museum pieces. We have an Altair 8800B, which was one of the first personal kit computers from 1976 to uh, the kind of classic IBM PC 5150, Commodore 64s, a bunch of different Apple II series computers. The Macintosh Classic is in this room as well. That's Libby Rose Strigel, a PhD student in the Intermedia Arts, Writing, and Performance program in the College of Media Communication and Information at CU Boulder. She runs the Media Archaeology Lab with a group of eight volunteers. The lab is one of the largest collections of functional, obsolete technology in the world. They have stuff dating back to the 1890s, but it seems the big draw are video games from a time when turning on your computer sounded like this. And when Super Mario Brothers sounded like this. So what's the reaction when adults who played these games as kids walk into the Media Archaeology Lab? Uh, usually overwhelming nostalgia. <laughs> often, often amazement that we have it in it and that it still works. And what about kids? Um, surprisingly also nostalgia. Um, so we get, we get this weird reaction often with 18 and 19 year olds who are nostalgic for a thing they never knew but have known for so long in pop culture uh, and things that they've seen online or they've played emulations of or they've uh, seen in the movies for their entire lives and so they know that it exists and they've never gotten to touch it. And what's the game the adults most want to play? One that takes them all the way back to the 40s. The 1840s. Well, we uh, almost always fire up Oregon Trail because everyone knows Oregon Trail. Uh, but we also have a large selection of text games or interactive fiction games that are really popular. That includes The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy game and Zork. But if you just want to play the games of your youth or your parents' youth, like Donkey Kong or Frogger, They've got you covered, too. 
so we've got everything ranging from old arcade style games like Asteroids and uh, Moonlander and things like that to the Mario games and racing games and we get a lot of asks for our e our copy of the Atari ET game um, and then people start to play it and are not, not happy to discover that it has earned its reputation for a reason. You can see what's happening at the Media Archaeology Lab at MediaArchaeologyLab.com. As video games have become more mainstream, plenty of naysayers have pushed back, saying they're too violent or they melt kids' brains. Brainwave's Dan Strain asked Danny Rankin about that. Rankin is head of the What Lab at CU Boulder's Atlas Institute. He studies video games and designs some of his own with some pretty unexpected inspirations. Well, Danny Rankin, thanks so much for uh, coming to Brainwaves. Yeah, glad to be here. There's still this stereotype that kind of lingers that video games are these sort of, you know, brain-rotting pastime. But just the name of your lab here at, um, at the Atlas Institute, what uh, suggests that, that they can also be the source of, you know, really surprising, really new experiences? Yeah, I mean... We call it that just because that like, what feeling is like a really important, you know, it, it's kind of this idea that you have no idea what you're getting into or what you're getting into is so much different than what you were expecting. And I think that games have the power to do that with people, right? It's a an interactive form of media. And more and more, we see people not just like smashing buttons, but like telling stories and understanding like complex social issues through games. And do you have a favorite example of, of a game that has sort of inspired this unique reaction in you? We run this festival that's all experimental games and odd interactions. And some of the speakers we brought out, like uh, the first year we brought out a, a developer designer named Pippin Barr, a lot of his work is both a game and also sort of an art project. He did one called The Artist is Present, which is based on this uh, installation that Maria Abramovich did in the Museum of Modern Art where people would come and just sit and look at her. And then he made a digital video game version of that thing where you literally – would just sit in a line for hours at a time. He did a whole series of uh, ancient Greek punishments in the form of various video game interactions. All these, you know, what isn't always just delightful. Sometimes it's like confusing and sort of like intriguing and mystifying too. So I guess on that on that note, and and video games not being just delightful, um, can they also serve as social commentary or even sort of satire? Yeah, and I think you know you've seen this kind of happen with. There's a I guess I would call them an arts collective development group called Mola Industria, which made has made press it a couple of times with like um, they made the phone game where you're like playing as someone trying to run a company making smartphones and a McDonald's game where it's almost like a simulation of being an executive in a McDonald's uh, kind of corporation where you're like exploiting labor and, you know, uh, factory farming and things like this. But there's still game interactions to it. So there's almost like this kind of fun entertainment. And then at the same time, you're sort of like feel really bad about what it is that you're doing. And you wouldn't normally think of office drudgery as this sort of source of, of you know, inspiration for a game, but that's, it sounds like that's what you're trying to do with busy work. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah. So people work in offices. It's super, super boring. Uh, and at the same time, they find ways to make that entertaining. And we wanted to make this sort of experience where you went into that and almost just hyper-satirized the whole thing, right? You're smashing the keyboard and the phones are ringing and there's a fake manager that's there. And this is, you know, this isn't a video game. This is like an in-place game where we build physical cubicles and one of me or Matt, my, uh, my collaborator, we actually walk around 
as a manager and like make people sign birthday cards for people that are sick in the office and shred papers and reorganize files and all this stuff. And by condensing that into this like three minute intensive arcade experience, you kind of take the whole thing, which in real life is kind of awful, and you sort of make it into this fun, whimsical experience. And I guess so. What would you what would you say to someone who still sort of undersells video games? Video games are just another form of media, just like books or TV or anything that people create, except that you have the ability to get people in a state of play where they're interacting with that. And there's even the potential for more, you know, communication with people and that more meaning can be brought from these things. So it's not just about like unplugging your brain and sort of staring at a screen. There's a lot of potential to to say things that can't be said through traditional media forms. And I think that's one of the things that makes me fascinated with games of all sorts. Well, fantastic. Danny Rankin, thanks so much for joining us here on Brainwaves. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for listening to Brainwaves. You can like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And again, if you have a question about this show or you have a big idea you want us to explore, you can email us at brainwaves at colorado.edu. I'm Paul Bake. I produce this show alongside Dan Strain and Andrew Sorensen. Cole Hemstreet arranged our theme music. We'll see you next time on Brainwaves. Waves.